Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. 2,400-something years ago, a man named Protagoras, arguably one of the first professional philosophers, taught an interesting and novel idea for his day. He said that man is the measure of all things. Plato understood him to be saying that there is no objective truth or value to anything, but rather how we as individuals or as a collective group think about something, that's what gives it its meaning, its truth. So there's no true right or wrong, good or evil. It's all just whatever we decide is right or wrong. Plato vehemently disagreed with this, and so have the majority of people throughout the majority of the world for the majority of time. In recent times, however, Protagoras' old idea is getting new champions, especially among atheistic naturalists, our popular scientists who you know, host documentaries and do interviews on talk shows. They assert that because physical nature is all that there is and ever has been, that uh, there is no transcendental values, none that are actually real. They think, for example, that morality isn't actually an objective thing, but just an evolutionary behavioral system that's advantageous for our survival. C.S. Lewis described them in the opening chapters of his book, Miracles. The naturalist will say, yes, I quite agree that there is no such thing as right and wrong. I admit that no moral judgment can be true or correct, and consequently that no one system of morality can be better or worse than another. All ideas of good and evil are hallucinations. Indeed, many naturalists are delighted to say this, said Lewis. But then they must stick to it. Unfortunately, though inconsistently, most real naturalists do not. A moment after they've admitted that good and evil are illusions, you will find them exhorting us to work for posterity, to educate to revolutionize, to liquidate, to live and die for the good of the human race. For they write with indignation like men proclaiming what is good in itself and denouncing what is evil in itself. Do they remember while they were writing thus that when they tell us we ought to make a better world, the words ought and better must, on their own showing, refer to an irrationally conditioned impulse which cannot be true or false any more than a vomit or a yawn? My idea is that sometimes they do forget. That is their glory. Holding a philosophy which excludes humanity, they yet remain human. At the sight of injustice, they throw all their naturalism to the winds and speak like men, and like men of genius. They know far better than they think they know. So even the cleverest of naturalists, like Carl Sagan, or philosophers, like Protagoras, even for them, the innate Deep down, intuition that morality is objective usually wins out in practice. In another book, Lewis describes how little children who've had basically no moral training will still very quickly develop an understanding of fairness. We're tapping into something real, it seems like, something that's in the universe before us, or maybe something that stands above the universe. Because within this universe, within our own world, we often see things that are not fair, that's usually the first insight that a child has that fairness exists, is when they perceive they've been wronged, something was unfair. They realize that's not good. So in this world, there is such a thing as unfairness, as things that aren't good or beautiful. And we negatively react to these things, like we know in our bones that they ought to be different. 
Which brings us to our gospel passage for today. Because we so closely associate fairness with goodness, this very strange story of vineyard workers all getting paid the same despite working very different hours offends our fairness meter, which is why Jesus told it. He's intentionally provoking us to move past our knee-jerk, and as it turns out, in this case, incorrect reaction. The laborers in the story who began working at the earliest hour got paid what was fair, what they agreed to. And just because the laborers who began working at later hours in the day also got paid the same wage as those that started working at the beginning of the day, doesn't mean that those first laborers were cheated. It means that the man who hired them all is extremely generous. The problem of jealousy, or the generous way that God treats the least and the last, has arguably been at the root of almost every significant spiritual conflict throughout the Bible, especially in the stories of jealous firstborn sons um, who, you know, are jealous of the way that their later-born sons get elevated. Think of Joseph and his brothers who uh, threw him in a pit <laughs> because of the favor he received. Jacob and Esau, all the way back to Cain and Abel. And even possibly in the very first conflict we ever see in all of Scripture, when a spiritual creature sets out to trick and overthrow the lowly dirt creatures that God has elevated to be his own image bearers. Clearly, our sense of fairness and, uh, you know, what we think is right can miss the mark sometimes and drive us into jealousy, which is sin. Which is why it's not man that is the measure of all things, like Protagoras thought. Not even always is it our internal sense of right and wrong that should be the measure of all things, but rather it's God himself. God is the measure of all things, and he shows us in this story and in the entire story of salvation that radical mercy is the highest good. It's above fairness. It doesn't contradict fairness. It transcends it. God's mercy isn't merely not giving people what they deserve. Rather, it's giving people what they don't deserve. It's an active offering. It's an audacious liberalism. Consider the other examples in the Gospels. The master who forgives the great debt of his servant, the host who invites everyone off the street to the banquet, the sower who scatters wastefully, the disowned father of the returning prodigal throwing him an undeserved party, the Samaritan who rescued the bloody stranger, put him up in an inn, paid for all of his medical needs, the publican who was justified, the penitent thief promised paradise in his very last moments. This is the way God works in the world. And it's the way he shows us to behave as well. If for some reason we fail to infer from these examples that we should follow that pattern ourselves, Jesus makes it explicitly clear several times. Provide a second cheek to be slapped after the first. Offer your cloak as well after you've been sued for your tunic. Love and pray not just for your friends, but also for your enemies. Forgive others' debts to you. And don't judge other people. Also, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit the sick and imprisoned, all who will be unable to pay you back. Because life will not be fair. You may be one of those people who are sick or hungry or imprisoned at some point. Look at the words of our psalmist in the propers for our liturgy today, experiencing the sorrows of death, the pains of hell, tribulation. 
Is God's goodness impugned through all of this because his children are suffering these things? Not according to St. Paul, whose visions of heaven led him to tell the Roman church that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's no scarcity in the kingdom of God, no need to compete or vie for position or reward. God is the storehouse of eternal blessing. He just wants to bestow those blessings on creatures whose moral and spiritual formation will allow them to enjoy those blessings, which is why the last in this life in terms of material blessing will be the first in the next life in terms of their ability to appreciate what's in store for them. The two precious girls who were baptized this morning at such an early hour in their lives are in for a life of hard labor, a life which will potentially seem unfair at times from a certain perspective, but their labor will be rewarded with a wage which doesn't even compare to what they may endure here. And make no mistake, it's better to be laboring early in the Lord's vineyard than standing idle in the streets of this earthly life. The gentle blow on the cheek that you saw them receive uh, just before their chrismation is a rite of passage. It's an introduction to the hardships of the Christian life because we Christians, in order to follow Christ, must carry our crosses to follow him. But thankfully, these girls have also seen where they're following Christ to, a holy death that has been robbed of its sting. When they were submerged in the water, they followed Christ straight into death, and finding it transformed into a womb of new birth, they were raised up again to new life. That's why the waters were blessed, as uh, Father Ben was describing, to take out all evil from it, transforming them into a womb of new life. Going into those waters, like going into death, we find that following Christ there the waters are innocuous. It may be scary. I'm not saying it's pleasant, but they're ultimately innocuous. And what they do is transform us and bring us to new life. And so having gone into the waters, into death with Christ, they are then raised up again to new life and clothed with a new white garment, which is symbolic of putting on the very Christ life that they're now surrounded with. This is the wage God pays us for the labor of following him the absurdly generous wage offered to these girls now in this early hour, but also for every one of us who maybe haven't taken that plunge yet. If the hour is later in your life and you haven't joined up yet, the invitation is open as we hear. The, the owner of the vineyard goes out in search for people to bring in. So there it is, your invitation to join the highest good there is, a good that's beyond the mere common sense of fairness. Now, this is the transcendent, better reality of the good. This is the project of mercy, the family of the true God, the true good. If you want to know more about that, then please talk to Father Ben or myself or one of our members after the service, and we'll absolutely love to talk to you more about it. But for those of us who have taken that plunge and who are members of this family, today is also offering us something. This parable reminds us of something that we may forget. That's why uh, last week, if you showed up, things looked a little different here. The liturgical color was green, indicating growth, and we were going through the miracles and the teachings of Christ. But now today, we go to a more somber color.
color in the mind of the church, this purple, this violet. It's a somber color because we are beginning to turn toward a new stage of the year, a stage in which all of us communally begin a fast in order to intentionally practice the work of God, the, the works of mercy that God does. We, we can become complacent. And so it's good for us every year to not just let uh, opportunities to present themselves in our lives, but to intentionally dive into the work and project of mercy. And we call that Lent. And we do it in preparation for the most glorious uh, day of the year in which the wonder and beauty of Christ's defeat of death is brought home to us year after year in the beautiful liturgies of Easter. So today, Lent isn't beginning, but the invitation has begun. Now is the time to prepare for that project of mercy. So let's take the opportunity, either as Christians to renew ourselves in that project or as people who maybe don't know Christ through baptism to answer that invitation and begin that journey anew. Let's do this, uh, keep this in mind today as we move toward meeting God at the altar as he makes himself present to us in a new way once again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.